Hello and welcome to Walkley Talks. I'm Claire Fletcher from the Walkley Foundation for Journalism. Every few weeks we share discussions about the craft and importance of journalism in Australia and the world, often recorded at our events. This is a brief episode, but a powerful one. You'll hear a speech from the chair of the Walkley Foundation directors, senior journalist Kerry O'Brien. Kerry was kicking off our recent Walkley Fund for Journalism dinner in Sydney. You'll hear Kerry introduced by the MC on the night, Samantha Armitage from Channel 7. This talk was recorded at the Ivy Ballroom in Sydney on the 5th of April, 2019. It's now my job to introduce a man who really needs no introduction. A face we've grown to know well in our lounge rooms at 7.30 each night. A giant of interviewing. He faced off against Barack Obama, Margaret Thatcher, Mikhail Gorbachev. A man who has held some of Australia's most powerful politicians to account. And, of course, now the new chair of the Walkley Foundation. It is Kerry O'Brien, a six-time Walkley winner in his own right. He's got a new book out right now, a memoir, in bookstores now. Please welcome Kerry O'Brien. Thanks, Sam. Very nice of you to plug the book. (laughs) 43 years ago, I went to the Philippines for the ABC's Four Corners to cover a disaster story. A tsunami that hit the island of Mindanao, killing 8,000 people. After witnessing close up the nature of President Ferdinand Marcos's brutal despotism, I stayed on to tell another story of how Marcos had used martial law, which he'd introduced ostensibly to deal with the threat of communist insurrection to establish a dictatorship under which a powerful oligarchy of obscenely wealthy families, the so-called Marcos cronies, dominated the country. Marcos was well on the way at that stage to becoming the richest of them all. In the four years since he had declared the state of emergency, 50,000 people had been arrested. 6,000 of them were still imprisoned across 13 detention centres under the very broadly defined charge of subversion although many of those, the existence of many of those detention centres was denied. Other people simply disappeared without trace. The judicial system's credibility was gone. The Congress, devoid of debate, was being converted into a museum. Once critical newspapers were now propaganda sheets for a corrupt president. Given that we'd been warned about the president's army of nondescript spies and informers through the streets, cafes and hotels of Manila, and driving its taxis. I felt exposed as I stood in front of our camera in the square of the city's Catholic cathedral, reading a litany of torture techniques from the only remaining news publication in the country that still tried to call the government to account, a weekly Catholic journal called Sign of the Times. That litany included application of lighted cigarettes to various parts of the body, including the ear and the genital area, electric shocks on different parts of the body, including the genital area, stripping, and sexual abuse, and sometimes rape of female detainees, beating with fists and or gun butts and rubber hoses, forcing the head into faeces-contaminated toilet bowls, holding the victim's head under water until he inhales water or loses consciousness, squeezing fingers with bullets inserted between them, pressing hot irons against the sole of the foot. I spoke with some of those who were tortured, some who were brave enough to actually go on camera not in silhouette, not disguised, but standing and staring through that camera and daring Marcos to put them back in jail. 
Ten years later, I was back with another Four Corners crew to record the army coup that finally deposed Marcos and paved the way for a democratically elected government. With cameraman Chris Doig and sound recorders Tim Parrott, I stood in the dark side street running alongside Malakanyang Palace, listening to Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos take off on the other side of the palace wall in a US-supplied helicopter for exile in America and access to his billions in looted gold held in Swiss accounts. As he flew off and the rebel forces marched on the palace, a pathetically deluded ragtag bunch of Marcos loyalists stood at the palace gates armed with bricks and knives, thinking they were still defending their president. The Marcoses of the world, some of them cloaked in the trappings of democracy, are very good at enlisting the ignorant, the fearful and the prejudiced, as we know. Those two experiences were an important part of the understanding that I've been able to build up over decades of how power corrupts and how absolute power does corrupt absolutely. I also came to understand the fundamental importance of journalism, that arguably strong and well-resourced journalism is the primary bulwark against abuse of power. And without being melodramatic about it, the primary bulwark against authoritarianism that can so easily lead to fascism. I saw the corruption within the Askin government in New South Wales close up in the 60s and early 70s, the corruption of police in New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland in that same period, the institutionalised corruption that flourished in Queensland in the Bjelke-Peterson era. We don't have to look too far back to find more contemporary examples. The press in Queensland, with a few notable exceptions, was largely ineffectual in the face of Bjelke-Peterson's abuses he'd introduced an outrageous gerrymander. And it wasn't until his 18th year that Chris Masters' Moonlight State program on Four Corners comprehensively exposed the rot within, leading to the Fitzgerald Royal Commission, and the whole house of cards came tumbling down. There are four fundamental pillars that provide the foundation of democracy, a strong, genuinely representative parliamentary system, an independent judiciary, an apolitical police force upholding the law with integrity and a strong media. In Queensland in the Joe era, the parliament was reduced to a rubber stamp. The independence of the judiciary was sadly weakened in the way judges were appointed. The police became a willing partner in the corrupting process and only the media belatedly stood up. There's nothing perfect about a democracy. And just listening to those fine journalists talking about it, what it is like to be a good, honest journalism. It might sound like this is not a time to be reflecting on the kinds of things I'm about to reflect on. I think it's precisely the time. There is nothing perfect about a democracy and its imperfections are not only a reflection of the politicians we elect, they're a reflection of all of us. And as every person in this room knows, we humans are all imperfect. We're imperfect in the way we run our big corporations and our small businesses, our trade unions and our regulators, even our churches, certainly our churches, the institutions we've trusted the most. And of course, we're imperfect in the way we practice our journalism. In 2011, the year I rejoined Four Corners as anchor after stepping down from 7.30, the program celebrated its 50th anniversary and the new ABC chair, Jim Spiegelman, was there. He looked on as we reflected back on our glory days 
and liberally congratulated ourselves. Then he gently suggested that we might also reflect on our failures. I was stung by that in the moment, as were others. But whatever had provoked him to say so, he was right. Four Corners had an enormous legacy to be proud of, half a century in the making, even more so now, as Royal Commission after Royal Commission is forced on largely reluctant governments in an age where that brand of journalism is becoming increasingly difficult to practice. But without whipping ourselves, we should never lose sight of our inadequacies at the same time we celebrate our successes. Every year at the Walkley Awards, we honour a craft that holds power in its various manifestations, big and small, to account. We should also all be prepared to reflect on our own failures. The Walkley Foundation, as part of its brief to promote quality journalism, seeks to highlight the immense importance of public interest journalism as practised by quite a long honour roll of investigative reporters and researchers. But that form of journalism is still only one strand of the craft. The journalism that is most commonly practised in this country today, as it is in all genuine liberal democracies, is arguably failing at least as often as it's succeeding. In every undermanned newsroom where media releases are published with little or no basic fact-checking, it's failing. In every doorstop where camera operators are sent to record the shallow and self-serving lines of politicians without a proper strong journalistic presence, is failing. In every regional centre where the presence of well-trained local journalists is too thinly spread, it's failing. Every time we're on the phone when we need to be on the beat to see a situation firsthand, we're failing. Every time we devalue or disrespect the critical skill of sub-editing in whatever the medium, we are failing our craft. Every time media organisations reduce the ratio of wise older hands in the newsrooms of Australia to the younger journeymen and women and the novices, because experience is more expensive, robbing the young of their mentors, the kinds of mentors that journalists of my era took for granted and flourished from, we're failing. Has journalism faced a bigger test of its effectiveness in the last 25 years than in its reporting of climate change? Initially, an issue arguably bigger than terrorism, bigger than the rise and hopefully, speaking personally, the fall of Donald Trump. Bigger than so many other challenges that preoccupy so much of our waking hours and fill up so much of our journalistic space and time, because ultimately it actually goes to how our planet survives. Hold our political leaders to account for their failures on this front? Absolutely. But we can't let ourselves off the hook either. Tough subject to cover, complex to explain to our readers, our viewers and our listeners. Very tough to hold their interest and keep them accurately informed and engaged over years of obfuscation and manipulation and the fake information fed by vested interests and the deniers or so-called agnostics shrieking from their self-constructed pulpits. But on any honest reflection, by any yardstick, we have to acknowledge our part in a failed democratic process with regard to climate change. I'm not urging hair shirts and self-flagellation, but we should always be about... That's the Catholic coming out of me. <laughs> but we should always be about seeing the whole picture of how well we do what we do and not so much. Not just the bits we like about ourselves and our work. I was a correspondent in the US for the Seven Network 
as the age of 24-hour news began to dawn. Because we had the Australian rights to CNN at the time, I saw their operation from the inside and I was struck by the amount of time their journalists spent spruiking in front of camera positions around the country as the live cross became increasingly ubiquitous. I was struck by the amount of time that was sucked up by journalists and other commentators filling the airwaves with cheap talk, much cheaper than boots on the ground in filling the big black hole of 24-hour news. 20 years ago, I returned to CNN in Atlanta as part of a study for the ABC on how news was being gathered in major television newsrooms in Britain and America. And I noticed a large graph on the wall framing the main stairs in the news centre and the sign above it that read, CNN's chart of human history. And when I took a closer look, I realised it was actually a ratings chart. And at that point, the biggest event in human history, according to CNN, was the day the police chased OJ Simpson through the streets of Los Angeles after his wife had been murdered. I'm not just talking about CNN here. I'm talking about the nature of modern news gathering that's under more severe pressure than ever before. I'm talking about the age of satellites in television, which, while it introduced a greater and more immediate sweep of news coverage, also heightened the shallowness and the promotion of news, even serious news, as entertainment or infotainment, as it quickly came to be called. This coincided with another phase of the revolution, the arrival of technology that delivered colour to daily newspapers, followed closely by the marketers who began more and more to dictate what stories should be run to reach this demographic or that demographic, so newspapers could withstand the onslaught of instant television news. You know, we've been chasing each other's tails and we've been caught up in this, and I don't know that we have the time certainly don't quite make the time to really reflect on what all this means and what it's done to the quality of news gathering. This coincided with another phase, sorry. And we're now also struggling in the internet age, the age of digital disruption. Well, traditional media outlets are, the new giants of this media age are doing very nicely indeed. And there's another huge debate being had about all that. At one level, it's exciting. We're seeing the crikeys, the Buzzfeeds, the Huffington Post, the junkies and all the rest, although even those models are having their trouble evolving into more mature, long-term manifestations of reliable news coverage. This is the age of the podcast. All those people around the world in their Gucci fitness uniforms listening to in-depth news and analysis as they power walk or sit in traffic snarls on their way to work or even as they go to sleep. We're actually awash with information, as we know, and on this front, there are no borders. We can access just about anything we want if we know how or have the resources to do it, including fake news and misinformation of the most toxic kind, feeding the prejudices of the naive and, as I said, the ignorant and the fearful. We've watched the deeply worrying rise of Donald Trump. We're watching the rebirth of illiberal democracies in Europe. But we can't be too derisive from the safety of distance because we're all only too aware of our own endemic vacuum of leadership in this country. With all this noise around us, the Walkley Foundation, a small but growing institution, is endeavouring to keep its eye on the ball. The protection and promotion of quality in journalism is our game, at the most basic level as well as at the pinnacle. We're not just about acknowledging the best and the brightest through an awards process that had small beginnings more than 60 years ago and now more than ever provides the gold standard that anchors arguably the single most important cornerstone of democracy. We are endeavouring to underwrite that gold standard in a very foundational way, to promote mentoring where it's in short supply, to assist regional journalism to lift its horizons again, 
to provide a leg up to quality freelance journalism whose income base has all but collapsed. That's one reason we've established the Walkley Grants, to assist freelance journalists with worthwhile projects that might otherwise never see the light of day. And it's my pleasure tonight to announce the winners of the inaugural grants. When we opened these up to applicants in February, we offered $50,000 from the Walkley Public Fund. 117 journalists pitched for grants of up to $10,000 to fund public interest reporting. We can now give even more than we'd hoped. I'm delighted to announce that the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas has provided an additional $25,000 to support the Walkley Grants for Freelance Journalism, making a total pool of $75,000. The aim of the Judith Nielsen Institute is also to celebrate and encourage quality journalism. The Institute's contribution to the Walkley Grants is an early, modest step in its longer-term program, and it's good to see them taking time to work out exactly what they're going to do, how they're going to frame it, because this is an enormous boost, quite apart from anything else in the signal it sends that there are people out there who really do understand the fundamental importance of quality journalism. And I understand that the Institute will be announcing further grants and initiatives in coming months, and we thank them for their support and wish them well in their endeavours. So now let's hear which journalists will be funded. The judging committee chose 11 projects which will span topics including the environment, health policy, big banks, sport, development, school funding inequality, migrant food workers, refugees and the impact of border policies, and more. In alphabetical order, they are Carol Altman, Jessica Cockrell, Michael Cruikshank, Nicole Kirby, Andre Dow, Michael Green, and Tia Cass, Erin Delahunty, Nina Fennell, Vivian Pearson and Margaret Patton, Kylie Stevenson and Tamara Howie, Dale Webster and Brian Wilson. Some of you are here tonight and I hope that this is a big step for you. I hope this really genuinely does help you further down your road. Although I've attempted to put the successful practice of strong journalism in this country into proper context tonight, I'm still looking forward to enjoying the stories of soaring journalism we'll shortly hear from some of this country's finest exponents of the craft. Thank you for joining with the Walkley Foundation in its pursuit of excellence. Thank you for your ongoing support. Listening to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Claire Fletcher. You can find links to all the stories mentioned in this discussion in our show notes. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com/slash/subscribe, and you'll be the first to learn about our new episodes, events, and other opportunities. If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate us. 
This podcast is produced by Kevin Suarez with help from the 2SER Studios in Sydney, Australia. <laughs>